Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. This episode features the fifth and final talk of Andy Mills' five-part series on faith and work. Andy Mills is the former CEO of the Thomson Financial and Professional Publishing Unit of the Thomson Corporation. He currently serves as the co-chairman of the Theology of Work project. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject, and visit us at our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Here's Andy Mills. Good morning. I guess when the lights go down, it's time to step to the front, right? Oh yeah, a couple of minutes late, sorry. I'm on vacation time. I'm getting last-minute uh, questions, which I'll try and answer. Doors closed on that now. Last submissions are in. And uh, let me just uh, say once again, what a great week that we've had with you all. Thank you for putting up with me through the week. And um, thanks for all the conversations I've had. Thanks for all the encouragement that you've given me. I would say the, the sort of the consistent theme that I've heard as people have talked to me is, I came to Camp of the Woods expecting to have a vacation. I did not expect to come and listen to work. And God has really used this time in a powerful way. And I just want to give the Holy Spirit and God all the credit for that. And um, I'm a member of the board here of Camp of the Woods. I'm very proud of the work everybody's done here and how much uh, transformation has taken place in the camp, getting it set up for the next 50 years, really. Uh, for those of you who were here 10, 15 years ago, you know that the facilities were beginning to get very old and tired, and there's been a complete renovation of everything. It's been a remarkable task, and we're ready now for the next generations to come. But the one thing I'll say on the board uh, is the first and the most important thing to us is the spiritual impact of camp. Everything we think about is either out into the mission field or the impact it's going to have on people when they come here this week. We love it when people are surprised by the Holy Spirit. At some point, anybody, has anybody been surprised by the Holy Spirit this week? There's a bunch of people surprised by the Holy Spirit. And we love that when people come to have a vacation and they come back refreshed, not only refreshed physically, but refreshed spiritually. And so I know some of these, uh, uh, these lectures are going to be uh, put on CDs. And so for those that are not here but will be hearing by CDs in the future, come to Camp of the Woods. It's a great place to be. Now, I've... Uh, my wife reminded me that I've bragged on my daughter a couple of times, and I haven't bragged on my son, and um, that's going to be a problem when I get home, so I, I just want to even the score a little bit, and I just, I had a conversation with my son this morning, he's 26, he came out uh, of uh, college three years ago when getting a job was really difficult, he wanted, he did a business degree and he wanted to get into the world of business, and he said, Dad, what should I do? And I said, you know what, you just take any job you can get. You know, just get any job you can get, whatever it is, get in a company and start working and work with excellence and you'll see what happens. Well, he started a $12 an hour customer support part-time job in a company and this was less than three years ago. He's, uh, he's had three or four promotions since then. He's got a nice compensation salary job now and this morning he called me just to let me know he'd been given his first award of stock options. So I was very proud of him. So anyway... Good for him. Now, you remember what I said about stock options the other day, by the way, right? That was just what we give young people to, for a hope for the future, to make them work harder. You know, he finished work last night at 8.30 or something, so I'm going, oh, yeah, I've seen that pattern before. But we talked about stock options this morning, so that was great. Okay, what I want to do today is the following. This is kind of really your day uh, to grill me a little bit. 
But what I want to do is I, I just want to finish with a couple of comments up front um, about to maybe, maybe a couple of pieces of scripture that I'd like to share with you that maybe brings things together a little bit. I don't have my uh, security blanket here, my whiteboard. I feel a little, uh, but I'll try and manage without it. And uh, so I want to do that. I, I want to make some comments about the church, which I think is important. And then I'm going to move to Q&A. And then once we've done the Q&A, I want to move and just do a, a brief demonstration if we've got time left for the uh, theology. Talk a little bit about the Theology of Work Project and the website because I think it can be an incredible resource for you. But I'll spend about 15 minutes, a paid broadcast, paid advertising broadcast at the end of this thing, or unpaid, I should say. So let me start, uh, and, and I want, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times this uh, phrase or this word, economon which uh, appears uh, in the New Testament around 11 times. Um, and oikonomon is the Greek word which is, has two root words to it, uh, oikos meaning the house, and nomos meaning law or rule, um, and, and so put together sort of the rule of the house or the rule of the law. And most commonly it's, trend, and, and by the way, that's the, that's the root word that we get our word economics from. Um, and it's most commonly translated in the Bible as steward or master or steward or manager or steward. I hope one of the things that you haven't heard from me very much this week is the word steward. When we typically talk about the marketplace and we talk about work and we talk about God's calling and creation, most of the time people immediately go to, we are stewards of God's creation. And you can translate economon that way. You can translate it as steward, but, I, but, but like a lot of things, I think it loses a lot in the translation. And I want to just describe to you some of the ways that economon is used in the New Testament, begin to give you a sense, I think, of a completely different flavor of what God is really trying to get at here through his scripture to tell us who we are and what we're supposed to be doing here uh, uh, on this earth. And so, I, I want to take you to, the, I'm just going to give you the, the description that comes out of Thea's lexicon, which is a, a well-known lexicon taking Greek words and trying to describe it uh, in, in different ways. And there are several uses, different uses of the word oikonomon. But I'm going to focus on a couple in particular. The first one is this, a manager of a household or of household affairs, especially a steward, manager, superintendent, and then parenthesis, whether freeborn or as was usually the case, a freed man or slave, to whom the head of the house or proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out the proper portion of every servant and even to the children not yet of age. You see the depth of complexity of what that means to be an oikonomon? The most obvious oikonomon that you can think about in the Bible was probably Joseph at Potiphar's house. Joseph at Potiphar's house was a freed slave in the Potiphar's house who was the head of Potiphar's household. He was responsible for all the management of the affairs. He was responsible for the money, the allocation of the money. He was responsible for the feeding of everybody, the feeding of the servants, the proper allocation. And at times, although we don't, we don't know this from Joseph's story, but at times as it's described here, even the children not yet of age. So the oconomon in a family also looked after the children of the landlord or the owner or the proprietor when they were not yet of age. And the word that's used here is he's the, 
entrusted to them the management of these affairs. Now, I would argue if you begin to think that about that as a concept and now you begin to substitute instead of the landlord or the proprietor, you begin to substitute God. And instead of his household, you think of his creation. And you substitute instead of this slave or freeborn and you substitute you, me, us, who were once slaves but are now free. I think, and you apply that same entrustedness, looking after things, being entrusted to manage all these affairs, including the way the right portions are given to people and even to the children not yet of age. That responsibility, that entrustedness, God is giving to us. And that's why I think the word steward doesn't quite get it, because steward is like a hired man who looks after things and makes sure it works. This, this is so much deeper than that. Let me go a little bit further. Uh, by the way, if you, if you, uh, let me go on a couple of other things. Uh, other places it's called a manager. Uh, one place in, in Romans 16, the Oconomon is translated as a superintendent of the city's finances, the treasurer of the city. In another place, 1 Corinthians 4, you'll see it as uh, one, uh, those to whom the counsels of God have been committed to be made known to men. I mean, there's an entrustedness. In fact, if, we, if you just turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you could do that. Because again, I want you to get the depth of this and the, and the significance of this. So then we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 I'll read. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now the word oconomon is not that word servant. That's diakonos another Greek word. The word oconomon is, is translated as those entrusted with, the entrusted ones. And what are we entrusted with? The secret things of God. I mean, again, when we're talking about entrustedness, this oconomon sense, we are entrusted by God, not only with his creation, but in this case, with the, with the secret things of God. And verse 2 goes on to say, now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. That flip side, responsibility, accountability, the trust that's being given to us, what is it that God is calling us to do? We must be found faithful. God has entrusted us with something that's very special. We're not just stewards. He's entrusted us with something very special. And on the backside of that, he requires that we are faithful in the way we do that. I hope you're beginning to see this sort of elevating of this responsibility. But what a joy that God would think about us in this way. Second place that I'd like to look in the Scripture, if you would turn to it, is 1 Peter 4.10. Uh, you could go to Titus 1 and you would see that Oikonomon is translated as an overseer of a church. So somebody who is an elder or an overseer of a church is translated also as Oikonomon. But if you go to 1 Peter chapter 4... And you look at verse um, 10, this is what you read. Each one, this is the NIV again, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. Anybody want to guess where oikonomon is in that phrase? As it's translated, where's, where's oikonomon found in that? Faithfully administering. 
Yeah, that's the translation of autonomon. Not just a servant, not just a steward, but one who is faithfully administering. And by the way, I love this. I mean, this verse is a great verse as we think about all the things we've been talking about. It starts with each one. Every one of us. Nobody, there are no exceptions here. Every one of us is being called by God to do what he's calling us to do. Everybody has a calling. Each one should use whatever gifts. Everybody has gifts. They're all different. Whatever gifts. There are no special gifts. There are no gifts that some people have that others don't that are different, and, and this is not a different class of gifts. Uh, Peter here is saying whatever gift you had, you should use. And again, it goes on to say that gift you have received. We talked about that earlier this week. But the gifts that you have are being received. They're a gift of the Holy Spirit. You have been given gifts, whatever they might be, for the purpose that God has for you. And then it goes on to say to serve others. You remember one of the things we talked about, the way you should work in service to others. Whatever gifts you've got that you've received to serve others, and then this idea of faithfully administering, wherever you are, faithfully doing that. Administering what? God's grace in its various forms. There are lots of forms in which God's grace is exhibited. You know, this is why I can't be, uh, I I can't give you a a definitive answer to what this means in your life. (laughs) Because it starts with each one of you, but it's whatever gifts. I don't know what those gifts are. Faithfully administer in the place that God's put you to serve other people in ways that I'm not sure. I don't know where you all are. But in a way, that administers God's grace faithfully, God's grace in various forms. Again, I don't know what God's grace looks like in the environment you're in in those various forms. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns there. But you know them. And you can work on them. And you can go before God and say, what is that all about? We're not slaves. We're not servants. We're not stewards. We're not managers. We are the entrusted ones that God has called upon to be faithful in the administering of the things that he's given to us to do. That's a holy calling. That's a high calling. So what does that mean? What does that mean in the environment that you're working in? If you could imagine, this is the way I would try to explain it to myself and to you, think of the arena that God has given you, the areas of responsibility, the areas that you touch, whether it be your family, your community, your church, your workplace, whatever it might be. That's the place that God's given you. That's the little piece of God's creation that he's pointed to you and said, I've placed you there. There's no surprises. Some of you may say, I don't want to be there. Doesn't matter, you're there. And I would say, if you're there, you need to be released to go somewhere else. And people will be released at times. We've had a couple of conversations this week about, are we released to go somewhere differently? And actually, the conversations have sort of turned around for, not that I want to be released, but let me get back Monday morning to get back at that thing. I think that's what God's calling us, to be faithful there, to be in those places that God's put you. Think of that place he's put you. And then say, what would it look like to administer God's grace faithfully in that place? with the gifts and skills that I've been given. And it's not just good output, but it's also to recognize that place is not only the physical place, but it's also the place that includes the people. How do I minister to the people? How do I serve them? How do I help them do what they're doing better? How do I create a culture that's more healthy? How do, we, how do, I, how do I help us deal with conflict? How do I help us solve problems? 
How do we bring some fun and joy back into this workplace? How do we achieve goals together so we feel like we're working as a team? Again, I, I can't pretend to know in each of your places what places you're called to, where you are, what that might look like, what are the component pieces of that environment you're in. But, but God is calling us to be an economon, a faithful, faithful, trusted, and trusted one to be faithful administering God's grace in that place. And I just find that, uh, to me, that is just the most wonderful picture of the responsibility and the elevated responsibility that God's given us. I want to give you uh, one more scripture. Uh, if you want to turn with me to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, uh, verse uh, chapter one, verse eleven. And this is Paul talking to the Thessalonians. And I just think, in my mind, this has been a very important verse to help me understand this intertwinedness between us and God in doing the things that God would have us do. It says simply this, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. And then to go on to 12, We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So let's unpack that a little bit. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, so that's Paul constantly praying for the Thessalonians, that God may count you worthy of his calling. Isn't that something that we all desire, to be counted worthy of God's calling? I mean, what it says here is we all have a calling. We've talked about that this week. And now we need to be worthy of that calling. And how do we become worthy of that calling? He goes on to say, by his power, he, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. You see that entwinedness? We have good purposes and, and acts that we do. Where do those come from? They're prompted by our faith. So God is prompting us through our faith to do things with our lives that are good purposes and acts. But where do they get fulfilled they get fulfilled by the power of Christ. So God kind of inspires through our faith. We are prompted to do things. Those things are fulfilled by God's power. And when we've done all of that, we're found worthy of our calling. I would just hope that as you go back into your places of work, home, this, that, and the other, you think about that, 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 Entwining of the way God is not leaving us separate. Now, it just goes back to the, the first, converse, uh, the first uh, speech or uh, sermon that Andy gave us when he talked about the absent Allah versus the present God. This is, this is God completely entwined in our lives, prompting us with faith. We, we, we think of good acts and purposes to do as a result, but it's His power that actually brings fulfillment to those things. And by the way, one of the things I've long term, a long time learned ago that if I do things in my own power, I end up doing about this much. When you let God work through you and his power begins to flow through, all of a sudden, remarkable things can happen. I love that passage. It's led me to, uh, in my own life, I have a little, I think a mission statement would be far too fancy to call it. Um, it's just a... Uh, uh, it's just a work in process. 
Um, and my work in process mission statement is, is simply this, that I believe that I am entrusted by God to further God's creation for his glory and for the betterment of mankind. So I would say I'm entrusted by God to further his kingdom, for his, for his creation, for his glory and for the betterment of mankind. I think when we're working together as economists, that's exactly what we're doing. We've been entrusted by him. We've been given things. We've been given skills, gifts, a place to be. We're entrusted by him to look after and grow and develop that place. That's furthering his creation. And why do we do that? Firstly, for his glory. And secondly, for the betterment of everybody else. That's the Christian life. That's the impact of work. That's why we do what we do. And all I can say to you, if every Christian was working like that, man, the world will be different, right? But guess what? One day we'll all be working like that. Isaiah 65 points to that day when we're all in heaven together. But right now, we should be about redemption, and we should be about redeeming the culture. Romans 8 says that creation groans, (laughs) waiting for redemption. You know, it's not only man who has fallen... The impact of sin is on all of creation. Creation itself is groaning, waiting for redemption. We ourselves cannot redeem. Only Jesus can redeem. But we can be part of that redemptive process. And that's the joy of the Christian life. And that's the responsibility. And that's the entrustedness with which we've been given. So those are just some final thoughts for you. I just want to say... Is is anybody not inspired by that as a vision that God has given us? I mean, it's kind of like I think we should all put our hands in the middle and do a, you know, yay, go. But but I'm a Brit. That would look kind of strange. So, rah, rah. Okay, I'm going to handle some questions. And... uh, these are the, I got a lot of questions. Uh, a lot, uh, many of them were duplicates, and so I have tried to um, uh, uh, bring them together. Um, and the first one, I want to grab the uh, the uh, the first one. Several were about women and work. Okay, there's a lot of women nodding and smiling out there. Um, and I think largely the question is something like, I mean, either should women work? Uh, uh, in the evangelical world, women you know, who stay at home and look after the kids seem to have a higher, ele- more elevated position in the church than, or, or, or viewed more favorably than women that don't work, or than women that do work. And if women work, they've got to be able to demonstrate that if they didn't work, their kids would be dying tomorrow. You know, otherwise, uh, why are you working and, and this, that, and the other. So what is the whole uh, range of, of, of women and work? I mean, I think the Bible, you know, one of the, one of the difficulties we have today is we live in a, uh, um, a first, we, we live in a first world and we have a number of first world problems. And I think this is, this is one of these areas that becomes much more uh, difficult because we sort of have a first world opportunity here. In other words, we have a first world opportunity by women can stay at home and not work. When I say not work, I mean not go into the, the, the workplace on, on a full money basis, work at home, obviously. Uh, that's not true of many cultures. In fact, it wasn't really true of, of the historic, uh, if you look at the historic cultures that you find in the Bible. Um, you know, we have a culture today that's also global. We have kids who, when they leave home and want to go to college, and if you're based in Massachusetts, they want to go to California. Um, 
You know, you have situations where your first appointment uh, in, you, in, in a large corporation, you find yourself being shipped to Hong Kong. Or, you know, so families, the modern world is, is a very distributed world. The world of the Bible was a very much a family agrarian world in which everybody was together. And so in some ways, this question would not even have been asked, I think, two centuries ago, Right? Women were part of the workplace. They were part of the home. I mean, they, they had responsibilities, like children had responsibilities, like husband had responsibilities. Everybody understood those responsibilities. Everybody worked together. Families worked together. And, you know, I think it's only of late that we're having to deal with these questions. But I, I would say this quite clearly. You know, there are lots of examples of women who take leadership roles in the Bible. I think we're wrong if we sit there and suddenly say women should not be in roles of leadership in, in communities. Um, I, I, I want to leave aside some spiritual leadership issues and eldership, and I think people can disagree on whether men and women can be elders or just men can be elders, and I think there's, there's a debate around that. I'm, I'm going to leave that aside because that's the spiritual side and it's a dip, more difficult thing, and I'm going to duck it. Uh, but I think in the workplace, um, you know, you have, um, uh, you have judges, you have, uh, you have people like Lydia, you have, and, and, and most famously, I think you have Proverbs 30, 31 woman. Uh, this very special uh, person, and it's interesting if you go and look at our website, when, which I'll demonstrate a little bit, but when you look at our website, we've, when we do Proverbs, uh, and this was written um, by Alice Matthews, who's just a wonderful woman theologian, um, she uses Proverbs 31 and the elements and the attributes of the Proverbs 31 woman as a way of actually explaining all of the attributes and organizing all of the attributes throughout Proverbs as to how we should live our lives. And it's a very nice way of, of, of reigning that. But, uh, you know, I mean, the, the Proverbs 31 woman is actively involved in the marketplace, actively involved with her home, actively involved helping and supporting husband. Uh, and, and I think uh, today uh, I find no reason that women should not necessarily be in the workplace. But I think you have to think about the following things, and I would say the same to a husband. You have important responsibilities, such as family as well, and you have to think about how those things all work their way through, and every family, I think, has to make different decisions. Um, I would say, for example, that uh, you know, this argument that women can have it all is one that I think is already being debunked. And I think it puts far too much pressure on women to say they can be a corporate executive, they can be a you know, wife of, uh, uh, I was going to say a wife of three, no, a, wi a wife of one man, a, a mother of three children, plus be involved in the PTA, plus this, plus that, and everything else. And I just think that's a, we're putting, we're putting too much pressure on, on one person to be able to do those things. Everybody, men or women, have to make trade-offs with their lives. We never have enough time to do all the things we want to do. And you have to make trade-offs. I had uh, my two senior executives who traveled every, everywhere with me, my chief financial officer and my chief people officer, were both women. They had made decisions in their life. Neither of them was married. Neither of them had children. Their corporate life to them was the most important thing, and that's what they invested in. One of them more lately became a Christian, and she married eventually, and her husband, unfortunately, just recently died, but is just a w wonderful woman. Those are some trade-offs they made. Uh, and I think we have the freedom to make those trade-offs. But I think if you're in a home situation, uh, I think it's one of these things that the husband and the wife need to agree together what time is available and what's the way, how are we going to raise our children, what's the right way to do that. 
Uh, and I think we should be open to those kinds of uh, those thoughts. And I think uh, one of the things I find with women in the workplace in particular is if you don't have women intimately involved in the workplace, the problem is that there's a whole view of life that you're missing in terms of your decision-making. I mean, that diversity that comes with having women in the marketplace and, and leading with you, uh, I found very, very valuable and very important. So um, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're clear in the Bible that women take positions of leadership. They, they, they're in commerce. They're in business. They help the church grow. Uh, they're, they're the ones supporting Jesus. I mean, we see that all the way through the Bible, and I think we should reflect that. And I think we've actually come up with a sort of a, a narrow-minded evangelical view because people can stay at home that all of a sudden that's the way it should be. And so that's my view, and other people may disagree with me, but I would say I think we have to support uh, women in the marketplace. But you have to recognize there are trade-offs and recognize what those trade-offs are. Okay, so if I've not lost at least half of the audience with that answer, let me move on to the next one. The next one's had to do with children and being parents of children. How do we encourage children? How do we observe uh, what their gifts and skills are and, and, and all of those kinds of things? And... Um, one in particular asked the question, you know, if we're having difficulties ourselves, how do we encourage our kids? Uh, which is, I think, a very fair, a very fair comment. Um, one of the things I would say to this is, uh, it is, um, if you're trying to, I, I think as a parent, one of the, the easiest things to do is to observe your children and figure out what they're good at. Over a long enough period of time, you can watch your children and figure out what they're good at. Part of what you have to do is watch them. You know, I mean, that implies time. It implies time seeing them in different circumstances. I think it takes time to observe what they're good at to, to, and then to test some things with them. If you think there's an area that they're good at, why don't you just channel them in that area a little bit and see whether, in fact, they do respond well in those particular areas. So I think there's a lot you can do as a parent early on to identify channel. Now, again, I would argue that you shouldn't channel to the exclusion of a lot of other things. If you suddenly say your five-year-old child is brilliant at this, you, you don't want to then channel that child ed, ed, exclusively into that area because you may find a few years later that you actually didn't get that right. And now you've channeled this child into being a cello player where actually they ought to be a softball pitcher. And um, I, I think with children, one of the things that's, that's really vital is to give them a wide range of experiences, as wide a range of experiences as possible. One of the things we try to do with our kids is things like food. You know, we always said, you can say no to food, but you've always got to try it first. And you know what the kids found after a while is actually people eat food that typically tastes good, even if it looks strange and we don't quite know what it is. People don't tend to willingly eat food that tastes bad. And so all of a sudden, I mean, you'll find our kids now, they're eating sushi, Indian food, all this kind of stuff. They love all this sort of stuff. To be experimental, to go to different places, to see different things, to try different things. I think the more broad things you can do with your kids early on, uh, to expose them to as much as possible, the, be the better. And you can then begin to see the different things that they, they go well with and enjoy and seem to do well. Uh, I don't think kids should be specializing in things probably, uh, and this is p p true of sports, but I think it's true of other things, probably until they're in their mid-teens. You know, specializing them early in that is tough. Because if you specialize them too early, one of the things that happens is by the time they're 16, they're burned out on it. I've seen so many potentially good players who have been focused since the age of five on playing high-level soccer. By the time they're 16, they hate soccer. And I think that's true of other things in life as well. Give kids fun. I mean, for kids have got to be fun. You know, one of the things that we've got to think about is, is, is this 
Is this a child of God? And is God going to get this young man or woman to the place that he wants to get him? Or is it up to us to make sure that we get him to that place? You know, it's, it doesn't work that way. Give, be, I think you, as parents we should feel more freedom to allow kids to experiment and try different things. And, and if, if we struggle with it and we don't quite know what's going on in our own lives, well, you know, two things happen. Number one, it's never too late. We go before God and we continue to work. I mean, none of us are finished product. We're all work in process. We've, none of us got to the place we need to get to. Um, but just because you haven't kind of figured it out in your life doesn't mean you can't help your kids figure it out themselves. Uh, I don't think we have to have done it well ourselves necessarily to be able to help others do it. In fact, sometimes it's the ones that have struggled the most that have a better idea of how to help other people get there even though they haven't got there themselves. So I would just continue to encourage you to do that. I had a number of questions on uh, where is America today, uh, what's going on with uh, you know, free enterprise, socialism versus capitalism, uh, where in the world is this country going, where's the best place for a Christian work ethic, and, and this, that, and the other. Well, let me just say this, this, this one question. Where in the world, which country is the work political climate most favorable to be a Christian for the Christian work, work ethic? I would say without question the United States of America. We got a lot of issues, but where else would you want to go for the Christian work ethic? There are places now that I think are taking the free market further than us and doing it better, but it's without a moral backdrop, and that's going to be a problem. So if you want to live and work in a Christian environment um, with a Christian work ethic, I think the United States is the place, my simple answer. Um, socialism versus capitalism. Um, you know, this is the battle. This is the battle that's being fought right now for the, for the very uh, soul of our country. Uh, this is the political battle that's being fought. And it's being fought based on uh, academic work and thinking uh, that frankly does not look at empirical evidence and is ideological in its nature. Uh, and leads us, I think, to some, some poor decisions. But I would just say the following. Um, if you look at the history of Western civilization, the history of Western civilization has got to where we are today versus other civilizations because it is based on the underpinnings of the Bible, Judeo-Christian principles, the Protestant work ethic, if you want to call it that, and the principles that come out of the Bible that lead to freedom and individual responsibility and all the things that we think of in Western civilization and capitalism. Now, a friend of mine is, 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 uh, has, a, has a phrase. He said that capitalism has won the economic argument, but it's lost the moral argument. And I tend to agree with him on that because part of what's happened is, and this is an interesting thing, at the very time that I think uh, the free market has won the economic argument. You know, let's go back and look at Europe in the 20th century. Who wins that battle, right? You take a country, you cut it in half, you have planned economy on one side, you have free market economics on the other half, you join those companies together, countries together 50 years later. Wouldn't that be a great experiment to do to see what happened? Well, we've done it. It's called Germany. It's called Korea. I mean, there's a whole bunch of places. And apparently from space, one of the most remarkable sights is flying over the Korean peninsula, you know, way up in space. Uh, it, at time of dark, you know, the southern peninsula is all alight, and then there's a line, and it goes dark. You know, 
from, a, from a, an economic point of view, from an empirical point of view, one system outperforms the other system. The problem is that I don't believe that, that, that the free market system survives without a strong moral underpinning. And I think what we've got going on right now is a very interesting issue. People have tried to take God out of everything. So we have this economic system that relies on the underpinning of morality. We're systematically trying to take God out of everything. And then we're surprised when this economic system that depends on morality, with the morality taken out of it, is doing things in excesses that are not appropriate. And then as a result of that, we say, oh, we need to rush in and provide more regulation. We need to rush in and do more this, do more that, and do more of the other. And, um, you know, I, I just stand here and I'll say to you, I just can't understand and I can't believe that the best for the United States is to have 50, over time, 50 to 60 percent of its population living at bare minimum, being fed and supported by the government. I don't think that's the best for people. You've got to have a safety net, absolutely. I don't know what that number is, 20, 30 percent of the people, 50? I don't know what the number is, but it's not 50 percent. You know, how, how, how dare we think on behalf of people that say, this is the best life for you, that you can live on welfare or you can live on food stamps and this, that, and the other, and, and for people to begin to believe that's the best life for them. I mean, nothing we've talked about this week would leave it, lead us to that as being the best place to be. I, I just don't see that as the best for the country. Now, having said that, we've got to do a, a lot more for those of us that have to begin to work with those that don't to help them have a leg up. If you remember my work in Arua, that's what we've got to do. In the, you know, why do I have to go to Arua to do that? There are places 20 minutes away from my home where I could be doing the same thing. And I challenge myself with that question. In fact, Ray and I have talked about that sometimes. You know, but... Why don't we get, in, you know, are we getting involved as Christians with people who really could help not love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself? I'm struggling, I'm unemployed, I can't find work. What does it mean to love that person as yourself and what would you want to have happen? So I, I think economically the, 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 the free market system is the best way empirically to go. But it's, it has to be underpinned with morality and that's been taken away from it, it's up to us, I think, in the Christian community to feed that back into the system. And then I think we'll see hope again. But we have got to reclaim lives. We're just casting off millions of people to a hopeless future. We'll be held accountable for that. And I think that's where all the, the stuff that sort of comes into the redistribution comes from is just to help those folks. It's, a, it's an opportunity and it's a way to think about that. The whole area of social justice is just a redistribution to help that. But I don't think on the long term it helps. I think all it does is tears everybody down. But those that have can't just sit there saying, I've got and I'm fine and I'll sit in my suburb and that's it. We've got to get involved. And for all of you here today who have, one of the questions is, how do you think, is, is there one person you could think of that you could come alongside to help? I mean, for 30 million, pick a number, 50 million believing Christians in this country, 30 million, I, I don't know what the number is. But if each one of us, if there was only 30 million, if each one of us took one person under our wing, that's 30 million, that's 60 million people between the two of us. And the next year we picked again, 60 times 120. I mean, it's only three or four years before you got the whole country dealt with. 
but I think we're kind of comfortable. You know, the problem is that's inconvenient, and we don't like inconvenience. So I'm on my soapbox here. My apologies. Should churches and Christian colleges be run like a business? I've got several of these kind of, should ministries be run the same way? How do I think about this thing? I want to make a distinction between churches and not-for-profits. A church is a not-for-profit, but a church is a very special thing. I think not-for-profits, so what do I mean by that? I mean colleges, I mean support uh, ministries, support missions, uh, these kinds of things. I, I think they should be run more and more like businesses. Now, don't forget, I'm a businessman and everything, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I'm a businessman, so, you know, I think that's what you've got to do. But I I think the problem we have uh, is increasingly the amount of money that not-for-profits are absorbing and using. One of the the problems is it doesn't have what I would call a free market test. It doesn't have a market test. In other words, are you very good at what you're doing? You know, if I'm, if I'm raising $10 million a year and uh, we have a group of evangelists going around the world and last year 10 people came to know Jesus Christ, is that a good performance or not? I mean, it sounds like not very good, but do we know? Um, what, what is the metric for that, that we need to think about? And, and, and my encouragement is this, that I think, the, I think increasingly not-for-profits need to think very carefully about what those metrics are. What are we trying to do? What are our goals and objectives? How are we doing that? And then when we go to ask for money, to lay those facts and figures on the table. And if someone comes and says, you know, it costs us three cents and three dollars and fifteen cents for every soul we save, uh, you know, you've got to test those numbers. And someone else comes along and says, it costs us forty-eight thousand dollars for every soul we save. We think about those things a little differently. And I think the test of the marketplace for a, for a, for a, a not-for-profit is actually in that, fund, in that fundraising. That's really the market test. Are you, able to, are you able to lay out an investment case for the people that are going to give you money that makes sense that they will then invest in you? And I think, and I think, uh, I, I think organizations have to think much more crisply about that. I think that typically uh, their organizational shape is not very good. It's often too fat. It needs to be thinner. It needs to be more radical. It needs to, I, I think it, need, it needs to work much more from a point of view of what are we getting done by next Tuesday and who's doing it and you know, all this accountability and all this feedback that we're used to into the business world I think needs to be brought back into that environment. You know, part of the problem you find, and I found this in not-for-profits, is people say, well, I don't really want to work that way. If I wanted to work that way, I'd have gone into a business and you'd be paying me more. But I'm making this trade-off to get paid less, but I don't really want to work in that high-pressure way. And I think we've got to change that around for success. One of the things I'm encouraging people that I work with in the, in the for-profit world is to say, I think increasingly you need to have some amount of the money that you need to raise generated by your own product or your own activities. So there's a, an organization I've supported out of, uh, out of Boston called uh, uh, Leadership Transformations. It's in spiritual formation. It's a really wonderful organization led by a guy called Steve Machia. And, um, you know, spiritual formation is not necessarily one of the things that you can think about. Oh, I can generate revenue from spiritual formation, right? But actually, they've done some remarkable things. They've got, uh, they've got some programs whereby churches now can self-evaluate in terms of how they're doing and a whole series of activities that they do, which they sell. And, and, and people have to pay for them. It covers about 50% of their costs now. And they've been able to 
and I think it's just great for people to see that even in something like spiritual formation, which is for some people a very touchy-feely kind of area where you wouldn't be able to have metrics and this, that, and the other, they've been able to do that, and they've been able to do it well, and as a result, they've been able to grow and expand more quickly. I think we need to see more of that. Now, a church is a little different. Now, there's some aspects of the church I think have got to be the same, but then there's the spiritual aspect of the church that I think you've got to be very careful if you take sort of the, the, the business aspect, particularly in terms of winning people and marketing the church, I think you get into a very difficult place. You know, if all we're doing is doing things to tickle ears, to bring people in, uh, I think we have great warnings about that. But there are still certain aspects of the performance of church that I think we still need to work on. You know, what are we trying to get done? How best to do it? And all these kinds of things. But uh, So generally, I think there's got to be an improvement in performance around all of those areas. Um, and by the way, one person said that her husband saw that salaries of not-for-profit were 300000 for the CEO, and that's led him not to give. Uh, yeah, that's an issue. I mean, 300000 actually, in some of these is low. I mean, I think the Red Cross was a million, a million or more, or this, that, and the other. And I think some of that is excessive, and I think that needs to be brought to the light. One of the things you can now do is you can go to the 990 form, and you can look at all that laid out in the 990 form of every of every institution that you want to support. You can go in and see who gets paid what, how much, all these kinds of things. And I'd recommend that. If you're going you know, to give someone $100, I wouldn't think about that. But if you're going to do that, I would look at that carefully. Now, having said that, sometimes you're better off paying someone who's really good 300000 than paying somebody who's not very good 100000 So you've got to be careful. I, I don't have this number that says in my mind, ah, if it's anything north of 250 that's bad. Um, so I, I, I'd be a little careful with that. By the way, just, just a, an aside, when thinking about giving, one of the things that I try to do is I try to give to fewer institutions and give more to fewer institutions than less to lots. I think you have much better way of thinking about life that way if you do it. Just realize the time is disappearing very quickly. I'm going to do a couple quickly, and then I want to get onto this website. Um, how do I run my meetings? Is there a certain format? Um, meetings, very crisp. Know what the time's going to be. Have an agenda up front. Move through the agenda. Items at the end of every meeting in terms of follow-up. Make sure you follow up with the follow-up items. Make them as productive as possible. Have as few people in the room as possible. Meetings that have 30, 40 people in a room is a waste of time for most of them. Only the people that need to be there. Quick, short, to the point. Know what you're trying to get out of it. Know what the action points are and go from there. I think I'm just going to stop there. There's probably a couple. Of, I could go on for hours here, and I've, I've got five more or six more questions. But let me just go very quickly to the theology of work website, if we could just bring that up. Very quickly, the theology of work, 10 minutes, the theology of work project. The theology of work project is simply, is simply this. The, a group of theologians and workplace practitioners over the last five years gathered together under the leadership of some people like Haddon Robinson, Tom Phillips, to basically set out with one project in mind and one project in mind only, to go through every book of the Bible and just ask the simple question, what does this book of the Bible say about work? It's never been done before to our knowledge in human history that someone has done a systematic uh, genesis through revelation, what does the Bible say about work? Um, we are 80% of the way through right now. I think we've got 52 books of the Bible done. Um, 
and the balance will be up by the first quarter of 2014. So we're very close. What you see up here is everything that we've got up and running right now, and typically another book will come up about every two, three weeks, something like that. Uh, think about the order of this. We write a document on a, we, we write a document. So we take the book of Ecclesiastes, we write it, it's maybe a 12, 13, 14 page document. What we've done as we've looked at that book is it obviously breaks into what we call chunks that have different topics of discussion all the way through. And we make sure that we tag those topics of discussion with a subject heading. And then we put it into the database. And so if you wanted to search by Ecclesiastes, you could go do that. But also, it may have attached to it 20 topics or 20 subjects. And then if you ask a question of that topic or that subject, it will then go horizontally across all these vertical files and go to the places in all these different, all these different uh, documents where you find that aspect. And you'll call, so for example, well, let, me, let me demo it rather than talk about it. So this is, the, this, is the, this is the website. This is what you'll see when you come to it. I would recommend you go to the bottom here. You see about the project, and you could click on to about the project. And you can see up here, you can have a little welcome screen. What is it? How should we work? By the way, that's the document that I gave you day one. But if you want to go here, you'll find even all the scripture references to it. Here's a look at the team. This is a, uh, uh, this is a, uh, a document, the foundations. This is the uh, underpinnings, the, the, the spiritual underpinnings of what we believe. So you can see that. Uh, the process of how we've done it and the history of the uh, organization. So if you go to about, which is down at the bottom here, you can go into all of those aspects and then um, go look at and get a little bit of background on the, uh, on the, on the project. Uh, this is the main screen, and you can see it's broken into several places. These four boxes up top, calling, ethics, excellence, and workplace. And you could just enter, the work, enter there if you'd like to. So, for example, you're interested in excellence in the marketplace. You just click on that. What you'll begin to see, you see this is all tagged with this yellow uh, color. What you'll see below already is now all series of articles that we have tagged as excellent. And you'll see they'll come from different places. So uh, this is from Hebrews 5. This is from Daniel 2. This is an overview of the book of Jeremiah. This is from Daniel 4, Jeremiah again. If I go further down, you'll get to some of the New Testament. You see it goes on and on and on. There are hundreds and hundreds of articles in here because you take all the vertical files and you cut across them. There are many ways you can do it. So you can go in and uh, look at Revelation 17 to 22. We're talking about the tale of two cities, the fallen city, Babylon, and the new city of New Jerusalem. And you can begin to understand excellence from those points of view. And so you can go through all of these articles that would be tagged with that word uh, or, or have something to do with excellence. Most people don't tend to go in that way. Most people will tend to come down here you see in the middle, and here are all the books. So, for example, here I'm in the New Testament. And again, don't worry too much that you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians. We know Romans. Uh, we just haven't got it there yet. And Romans will come up probably towards the end of this year. But you could go to any one of those books, and you could go and say, well, let's just go to Matthew, for example, right up front. You could click on that. And here's now the book of Matthew. And you could just read that. It's probably 20 or 30 pages long because it's a very big book. And here we start with the introduction over here. And you just keep going down and, and you'll, see as you, you'll see it go down. But then you'll start seeing headings come through it as we break it up. So the first heading would be the kingdom of heaven has come near. The next is working as, citizens, working as citizens of God's kingdom. And you could go to that. And you could just go and look at each of those as you work through. 
Alternatively, if you look at the side here, here is the table of contents of Matthew. So when you say working as citizens of God's kingdom, which is right there, I could click on that, and it has two subheadings to it. Why should we listen to Jesus and Jesus calling? And, and, and that has a lot to do with what we've been talking about this week. The kingdom of heaven at work in us. And here we look at the Beatitudes, salt and light in the world of work, living out righteousness of the kingdom in heaven, wealth and provision, moral guidance. I mean, a whole bunch of things that you want to look at in each of those particular areas. So you can go in and look at a book like that, and you could go down and you could look at the different table of contents and you can play with it. Uh, if you went to the Old Testament, for example, I've talked about the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there it is. The book of Ecclesiastes is here. And you could go again down through the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's the table of contents over here. I recommend this book. It's a, it's a very interesting read. Um, and, and here it is. Now, interesting, here again we have these breaks. One of the things you're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes is, whoops, I'm going to start seeing videos. And we start to introduce videos in these places that are relevant. These are business examples that are relevant to what we're seeing in the text. So the one that you saw above with all the confetti, I think, is an eHarmony one. Um, I don't know what all of these are necessarily, but um, uh, there's one here, which is the Carstens of Ping, uh, uh, Ping Golf, uh, talking about what they've done. They're Christians, and it's amazing what they've done with their... And you can, oh, there he is there. Um, uh, that's the, the, the son of uh, Carsten um, uh, Soldheim. So, uh, and you see these, and you can go into those, click on that. You just click on this little video button here, and you can, you can get into the video as well as the text. The other thing you can do, obviously, is you can search it. So I've just gone down now these vertical files, and there's two primary ways to search it. Number one, by topic, you see here, and number two, by tags. You just left-click on that little arrow, and you can see all the different things that we've now flagged as topics. These are major topics in which there's going to be a major document, typically a 14- to 20-page document, and also then the references to all the other books that might come through there. So, for example, if I go to Ethics at Work, this is the Ethics at Work overview. This is the topical article that we've written. And now you'll see here ethic, pieces of ethics from all the other books that have been tagged as ethics. So, um, and you can see some of these um, the kinds of things that you can get to. I can also go to the tagline. And so, for example, you'll see here now a whole series of, of tags. And if you go along each of these, there are different kind of little topics. So under B, you have bad work and balance. Under C, you have catastrophe, character development, common good, communication, community, confession, confidentiality, conflict mediation, consumption, etc. All these are workplace terms, marketplace terms that reflect back to particular passages in the Bible that in our judgment uh, are well uh, reflected in the documents that you might see under there. So, for example, if I went to S and I looked at suffering... So I could click on for suffering, and now all of a sudden, here are a whole series of 12... Oh, I just clicked on that. Let me go back. There's a, a, a whole series of 12 articles, I think it is, or 12 pieces of articles that have to do with, with suffering in the marketplace. Similarly, if I went next to that, um, I went back to tags, and I went back to S, you'll see that I had success. So here we have success. Uh, and in, interestingly, in, in, in this particular case, the article Good for Whom came up both for suffering and success. Kind of interesting, right? But good for whom, right? And, and so you could go on through that kind of thing. Just a couple other things I'll show you. You could also explore, we're adding more and more content from non, 
uh, theology of work people. Uh, one of the things that I will point to, for example, if you look at, uh, um, you, you can see more and more videos, but now we're also beginning to put study, study guides up with videos too. This is produced by a different group, uh, but we work with them very closely. And what you can see here is, uh, these are the first four that have gone up. This is a small store in Texas, uh, I mean, so, uh, Iowa. This is eHarmony for some of our friends here. Where are our eHarmony friends? They're here somewhere, I'm sure, but uh, uh, this is eHarmony. So, for example, if you clicked onto this study guide, what you get, um, I talked about uh, Clark earlier this week. This is a six-part study, and what you're going to have is you're going to have both a video. Oh, there you are. You have both the video on the one hand, and you have a Bible study with questions that you could take off. Again, all around. So we're beginning to get this into more places that you can begin to take it. And, and by the way, you can see over here it says this resource has the following tags. And it, there's a whole bunch of tags here. These are the subjects. So this also, we think, talks about trust, this particular thing. There's, I mean, if you think about eHarmony and trust, that's important. So you could kick across here if you wanted to, and you could kick on the trust button, and now you'd find all of the trust articles that you could find on trust. You see how, you, I mean, basically all we're doing is inviting you in to sort of infinite exploration about these kinds of issues. I mean, I sometimes just get lost in this for hours. I'm just reading stuff that I can't believe, and I look at it and I say, well, that's interesting. Well, let me click on this. Let me. It just, it's just opening up the scriptures to thinking about it through a lens that we don't typically think about it. There's hundreds of articles here. I mean, if someone said there are hundreds of articles on, on, on these workplace matters, so, for example, conflict you know, conflict resolution. I always say this to folks. If I said to you, and I mentioned this earlier, if I said to you, what does the Bible say about marriage? We all pretty much know where to go on that. But if I said to you, where do you go on conflict resolution in a workplace? You know, Cain and Abel? I'm not sure that's a good example, right? You kill the guy? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. But here you could go as a conflict, you see, and all of the things that we've tagged with conflict we'd actually have there. In fact, the, one of them there you can see, the first murder. Uh, yeah, that's conflict in the workplace. Uh, but you see God's covenant with Noah, uh, and this is about Noah, but then you can move on from there. People in a fallen commercial restitution. How do we think about that? God demands change in Hosea, Ezekiel 33, Daniel 6, Daniel 2, Jeremiah Lamentations. I mean, and so it goes on. There's a whole bunch in here that has to do with workplace conflict and conflict resolution. So anyway, um, I, I just wanted to quickly, oh, by the way, this is, this is always make, you can come up here in the search box at the top, and you can put in any free form word that you want. So for example, I could put Yankees in here, and uh, when I come down here, it says, uh, oh, there are no results for Yankees. It's kind of surprising. Yeah, but you know what, if I put evil here... Uh, and I come down here. There are lots of articles on evil. Now, that's from someone from Boston, so you give me my little, my little humor there. But anyway, that's a way you can do it. But anyway, I hope that gives you a sense of there's an enormous amount of stuff here, and it's being added to all the time. So that's the thing I would encourage you to do. Remember, it's written in document form, but they're all tagged into small subsets, and then what this gives you the opportunity is to go across all these documents 
to look at what the Bible says. And then there are several documents in the, uh, in the topical area where you actually have the topic written itself on wealth and provision, etc. Well, uh, I've run out of time. I've got so many more things I'd like to say. You have been just terrific. Look how many are still here on Friday. Uh, give yourselves an applause, and, and thank you for being with me. Thank you. That was Andy Mills on Getting It Right. For complete show notes, go to theologyofwork.org slash resources slash getting it right. Join us for the next podcast, which will feature an interview with Dr. Sean McDonough on the book of Revelation and work.